Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 36, Anna Lavovsky, The Judicial Presumption of Police Expertise. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Anna Lovovsky. Anna is Assistant Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. She teaches legal history and evidence, and her research focuses on the legal and cultural dimensions of policing, among other things. Our podcast today features Anna's new article, The Judicial Presumption of Police Expertise, which was published recently in the Harvard Law Review. In it, Anna chronicles the rise of the idea of police expertise in courts, the idea that police officers possess specialized knowledge and therefore should be accorded some kind of deference for their opinions. Anna describes how increasing police professionalism in the mid-20th century led to their acceptance as experts as an evidentiary matter. That characterization of police for evidentiary purposes then led to downstream effects in criminal procedure, specifically in Fourth Amendment suppression hearings and vagueness doctrine. Anna, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Your article, of course, is about police expertise. How did you get started on this subject, and what was it that captured your imagination? So I came to the topic of police expertise through a somewhat roundabout fashion. It actually draws on my graduate research, which is into the history of policing against homosexuality specifically. So my dissertation, which I'm turning into a book, looks at police techniques against gay men in the 20th century, and specifically how police would sometimes play off public stereotypes about gay men and scientific or rarefied research into gay communities to defend their tactics in court. I think this research first made me familiar with the police professionalization movement as a historical phenomenon and also has made me sensitive to and really interested in questions of the politics of expert knowledge and police knowledge, particularly in the courtroom. The article provides a really extensive and comprehensive historical look at this, and it ranges from evidence to criminal procedure. I'm going to, of course, focus primarily on the evidentiary aspects, but then I'll give you a, a chance to expand on things later on. Tell us a little bit about how police testimony came to be viewed as expert evidence or involving some kind of specialized knowledge by the courts. Certainly, I think a lot of what police do would seem accessible to a lay audience. How did it shift over to the expert realm? So I'm really excited to talk about the expert evidence part of the paper, actually, because that's what I find the most interesting about it, how police expertise as a phenomenon or a presumption by the courts really arose in, in the evidentiary context. The shift toward courts recognizing police expertise specifically as a characteristic of all police officers, beat cops, not just specialized or federal agents, 
began really in the 1950s, which coincidentally is right around the time that the police professionalization movement gained steam in the United States and very publicly began to recast the police officer as a professional expert and a trained investigator. And as you mentioned, there are many forms of police testimony that might seem commonsensical, and this was the case before the 1950s, where you would have courts readily admit police testimony on certain matters, including the meaning of street slang or identification of certain drugs in court. But in the 1950s, you suddenly see courts recasting a lot of this testimony as specifically expert or professional knowledge. I argue that this happens really in three ways. One, as discussed, courts began rebaptizing what had previously been seen as effectively commonsensical vain knowledge that police officers, among others, were qualified to testify to as expert material specifically within the province of police officers. Second, and I think in some ways maybe more interestingly, courts began recasting evidence that had previously required scientific or medical qualifications into matters that police officers were capable of testifying to. So the core examples here are diagnosing whether or not a defendant or another witness to the crime was under the influence of drugs, and also identifying the physical traces of, of drug use, so track marks on arms. At a certain point, courts had required doctors or, or sometimes chemists to come in and, and testify to these matters. In the late 1950s, early 1960s, suddenly courts begin admitting police officers as professional experts who can testify to these facts, and often defendants would bring in their own rival experts. They would bring in traditional witnesses like physicians or other scientific professionals, and courts very frequently and very explicitly preferred police testimony over the testimony of these more conventional experts. They would essentially claim that police officers in their experience on the streets, in their training within police academies, gained more reliable insight into these matters than abstruse academic professionals. Would the medical experts actually get excluded in favor of the police, or was it that the court would simply characterize them one way versus the other? It really varied. So there are some cases discussed in the paper where you do see trial judges excluding physicians or psychologists. For the most part, they would admit both. But if it's a bench trial, for example, they would, in their ultimate determinations, credit the police officer's over the testimony of the physicians. And a lot of these questions would come up on appeal, which is the records that are preserved. And finally, I guess just to finish up that response, the third body of expert testimony that becomes entrusted to police officers in the 1950s, 1960s, specifically ethnographic criminological testimony over matters of criminal intent. And this becomes particularly relevant in the 1960s when many states begin passing laws against possessing narcotics with intent to distribute specifically. And so in that case, police officers begin testifying to many cultural or behavioral patterns that they claim establish either the intent to use drugs, knowing possession essentially, or the intent to distribute, including packaging, the possession of paraphernalia, various other small transactions on the streets. And this is a lot of what police officers testify to today in suppression hearings, whether particular of movement of the hand or the particular packaging or the presence of a glassine envelope or a foil envelope suggested that there was in fact heroin changing hands. I can see why the police would want this expert label for the last two reasons that you presented. So to supplant the need to provide some kind of medical testimony that's probably convenient for prosecutors 
and to provide the opinion that there was an intent to distribute or effectively to start wading into legal matters. What about the first issue, though? Was the expert label something that the police wanted when they were doing things that are largely commonsensical and not particularly specialized, at least to an outsider's eyes? That's really interesting. To me, that's one of the the more striking parts of the narrative because it helps question the purely instrumental account of the judicial recognition of police expertise, this notion that courts deferred to police expertise because they needed to find some way to defer to officers in general and expertise provided a good excuse. I think this case where police officers could have testified regardless, the evidence would have been admitted regardless, but suddenly it's being admitted as expert testimony. That's really one of the more interesting parts of the story. There are a few different actors involved and different suggestions you made might apply to different actors. I do think individual police officers, at least in larger cities, that prided themselves on being more professionalized, on having greater training, did want the expert mantle. There was this interesting sociological study done in the early 1970s, I believe, that surveyed police officers on sources of stress. And one of the most common sources of stress among police officers was the sense that the courts weren't sufficiently recognizing their professional insight and their expertise. I do think there is a certain professional pride among a lot of police officers. I say some because there were also, particularly in smaller cities, old guard police chiefs and unions that really resisted professionalization and thought that essentially aspiring to professional status was elitist and degraded the value of basic blue-collar police work that had existed for decades prior. It might have been a matter of occupational respect or ego for police officers. I think it's a particularly interesting phenomenon because being called an expert is, at least today, something of a double-edged sword because expert evidence tends to get more scrutiny under a Daubert-like regime. And part of me wonders whether it was more cost-free, perhaps back in the 1950s or 60s, when you didn't have the same kind of Daubert-type barriers that experts face today. That's exactly right. And I think there is some research that I believe Seth Stoughton has an article that came out recently about cases where police officers might actually prefer not to be seen as experts for that very reason. It's certainly my sense and it's a bit hard to tell in some of these cases because I, the paper looks at a lot of state transcripts and state cases where the judges really don't articulate the test they're using to qualify or exclude expert witnesses. I think it's certainly the case that the bar was lower in the 1950s, 1960s. There wasn't an official Daubert inquiry. That said, most of these cases are preserved because defendants were able to appeal the admission of this expert testimony and created an appellate issue out of it, which certainly wouldn't have been the case if police testimony had entered purely as lay testimony. So I think my sense is that, and this might be slightly speculative just because there are obviously very few records of prosecutorial decision-making. My sense, is, and this is intuitive and I think very much the case today, is that prosecutors preferred to offer police officers as expert witnesses in the hopes that it might sway a jury, even before a bench trial, in the hopes that qualifying a police officer as an expert might imbue the officer's testimony with greater authority. But the turning point is that in the 1950s, based on the advances of the professionalization movement and the professionalization lobby, which very, very aggressively recast the police officer as an expert, 
in the 1950s, 1960s, prosecutors suddenly were able to make colorable claims that these police officers were, in fact, experts. The supply helped create the demand in that sense. The fundamental implication of this shift was, one, that the police were admitted as experts, and then second, that they got the benefit of being experts because there's greater deference, there's just the aura of being qualified as the expert. Were there any other, at least from an evidentiary standpoint or a proof at trial standpoint, were there any other implications that came with this shift? I pause because the records reveal very, very selective glimpses into these trials, into these dispositions. So it is hard for me to say what other effects police officers as experts had within the merits trial itself. What interests me, and I don't mean to preempt your next question, what interests me primarily in, in the paper is the effect that the institution or the phenomenon of qualifying expert witnesses had on other arenas of the criminal justice system. So one core argument made in the paper is that it's the practice, literally the habit of qualifying police witnesses as experts at trial for evidentiary purposes that help usher in judicial deference to police knowledge at suppression hearings, both in the sense that judges were able to draw on their experience with police experts at merits trials to claim that police officers, in fact, have some professional knowledge, some systemic professional knowledge specifically to which they could defer, and also in the sense that judges would sometimes draw on the procedures to which they had become habituated in the trial context to help process police knowledge at suppression hearings. One really interesting phenomenon that you see in the 1960s, it's fairly short-lived in part because it's completely irrational from a doctrinal perspective, is that you see judges at suppression hearings in the 1960s formally qualifying police officers as experts, which doesn't really make any sense. Police officers at suppression hearings don't testify to the truth of a defendant's conduct in any sense. They simply share their own professional knowledge as among the circumstances that might establish probable cause. So there's no reason for these witnesses to be qualified as experts. But my sense is that judges are simply so accustomed to interacting with police officers and specifically with eliciting their professional knowledge in the form of expert testimony that they simply default to the same procedures at the suppression stage. Your paper also pushes this one step further. Not only is the belief in police expertise going to change the way the Fourth Amendment suppression hearing is run and, and how judges view the police officers at that stage, but also they start to defer on vagueness claims as well, right? Yes, that's right. And that to me is, I think, the most controversial example of judicial deference to police expertise in the paper. Essentially, there's the sense among critics of judicial deference to police expertise in the Fourth Amendment context, ironically, that deference to police knowledge in this context conflicts with a broader and more legitimate skepticism of police discretion in contexts like vagueness. And in fact, the interesting quirk of history is that judicial deference to police officers in the Fourth Amendment did in contrast with a proper judicial skepticism of police judgment in vagueness analysis. It actually created a blueprint of deference that then invaded the vagueness doctrine itself, where you see judges facing challenges to primarily loitering laws, typically loitering with the intent to commit a particular crime or suspicious loitering, loitering under circumstances that raise alarm for public safety. And you see judges frequently refer back to the Fourth Amendment and to the Fourth Amendment's codification of 
police expertise as sufficient guard against arbitrary or unfair police action in the field to say that even if a layperson wouldn't know how to enforce this law systematically and fairly against the population, a trained police officer and his expertise and his unique insight into crime will know how to fairly enforce the statute. Let me try to push this thesis of the implications of this expertise move to a different area that I don't think you explore in great detail in your paper. Is it possible that the acceptance of forensic science in courts is tied to this story in some way? Interesting. So the paper limits itself very self-consciously to claims that police officers have a certain professional expertise over the ethnography of crime. The reason is that I do think that police expertise over forensics followed a somewhat different historical trajectory and an earlier one. So by the early 20th century, it was fairly common to admit police expertise on certain forensic matters, including fingerprints, handwriting analysis, ballistics. This is a slightly different story for a couple of reasons, I suppose. One is that my understanding is that the police officers who testify to those matters often were specialized within the department. So this wasn't necessarily a talent that was ascribed to all police officers. And the second is that this is qualitatively, in terms of the subject matter, a very different type of expertise than the type of criminological expertise that, one, was pushed so aggressively by the professionalization movement in the mid-century, and two, has invaded these very prominent parts of judicial doctrine, most notably the Fourth Amendment and also, I argue, vagueness. I do see them as corresponding to just different forms of police training, training aimed at different officers. Those have always follow slightly separate historical tracks. Well, that's certainly fair enough. I thought maybe that your story might have given some explanation for what we see today, this somewhat often called Daubert gap between civil cases and criminal cases mm. and, the, and the scrutiny that the forensic community faces. But I see. if historically one precedes the other, I think can't make that particular link. On the topic of the gap, I do think one thing that I would very much disclaim against is suggesting that either this paper or the narrative I track in it suggest all forms of judicial deference to police and all forms of over-deference to police. I do think there are many instrumental and strategic reasons, including sympathy for the prosecution, sympathy for repeat players, that push courts to embrace police testimony. And to the extent that there's a very well-documented phenomenon of judges being particularly sympathetic and particularly welcoming of police expert witnesses today. A lot of those instrumental reasons probably play a strong role. Final question for you. Where would you like to see future work in this area go? So is there more to learn about police expertise, or will your future work perhaps look at analogous cases where changes in one doctrinal area like evidence affect the interpretation of law in other areas? I guess I would love to pursue all of those threads and also invite anyone else to do so as well. So I would at some point be very interested in trying to track this phenomenon of what I identify in the paper as structural spillover, where the procedural biases of particular contexts affect judicial decision-making in other spheres. I would love to track that phenomenon. In other cases, I think perhaps the judicial embrace of medical expert testimony would be one example how the advent of med mal cases affects or is affected by 
doctors testifying as experts in criminal or other civil cases. I would also love to look at the flip side of the judicial presumption of police expertise in two senses. One, in the sense that some courts in the 1960s, 1970s did very much try to lean on the professionalization movement's claims of expert knowledge, not to defer to police officers, but actually to raise the bar to hold them to a higher standard. So I think that's worth looking at. And I'd also be really curious to follow up on my graduate work in this context as well on cases where police officers today downplay their knowledge, the cases where judges don't overinflate, but actually ignore the extent to which police are relying on special information that other witnesses in the case defendants might not have. Well, Anna, thanks for taking the time to talk about the fascinating history of police expertise. It was great having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to discuss it with you. The story of police expertise, particularly for things that were previously lay testimony, is a fascinating one. My discussion with Anna brought out many of the reasons why the police and prosecutors might have wanted this transformation. From the standpoint of professionalism, it was validation. From the standpoint of trial strategy, it secured greater deference and the ability to block or at least challenge defense witnesses. And without a trade-off like a muscular Daubert inquiry at the time, this move was probably a no-brainer. But beyond the basic evidentiary evolution, the bigger story is the one Anna tells about structural spillovers, how changes in one area of the law affect legal perspectives in others. I think we often think about evidence as its own discrete corner of the world. Our job is simply to try to reach more accurate results. But Anna's article shows that evidence law can also have significant, though perhaps unintentional, effects elsewhere in the legal landscape. For example, the validation of police expertise in evidence law led judges to view police differently in criminal procedure. I'm looking forward to Anna's future work in this area. Although structural spillovers, like most unintended consequences, carry risks and concerns, for me there's something edifying about seeing evidence law as a mechanism for change elsewhere in the legal system. Whether one likes what happened in the police expertise context or not, it certainly opens up possibilities in other realms. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.